Welcome to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. It's no secret that Asia is home to some of the most dynamic, innovative, and game-changing companies in the world. Join us as we survey the land to find the most profitable investment opportunities that will allow you to capitalize off this next wave of wealth creation. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced with the goal of providing actionable insights with every single episode. And now, onto the show. Today's show guest is Michael Covell, a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and film director. In 1996, he co-founded TurtleTrader.com, which later expanded into TrendFollowing.com. Currently, he's based in Vietnam, and today he shares some very interesting stories about legendary Chicago commodities trader Richard Dennis and how trend following allows investors to profit in both up and down markets. Please enjoy my conversation with Mike. All right, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're, we're very delighted to have you on. Being uh, very acclaimed and uh, and famous, so to, so to speak, in the financial industry, so uh, we're excited to hear your thoughts on uh, on uh, what we're going to talk about today. So thanks for making the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Um, for the audience that might not have heard of you, because uh, we're going to have a, quite a varied audience tuning in from around the world, maybe you could give a quick background on uh, who you are and what you do for a living. I. Many years ago, stumbled into a style of trading called trend following. So for all of those folks out there that think they can know how to value a company, they know the fundamentals, they know the PE ratio, they know this, they know that, they're going to be the next Warren Buffett. I'm the opposite of all of that. So I'm the guy that says trend following or momentum, time series momentum is the way to go. And I think, you know, if you look at the last 20 years, the booms and busts, I mean, frankly, who was predicting anything? Who was predicting the dot-com bubble? Who was predicting the Great Recession? Who was predicting Bitcoin? Who was predicting the current U.S. bull market right now? You know, these things happen. And what I love about trend following, and, you know, I got, it's a long story, but how I got started in, in the 1990s, I, I saw all these fantastic hedge fund managers that nobody was talking about, and they were making a bloody fortune. And you could see their track records. There was proof that they were doing this. It wasn't just another talking head, you know, on CNBC's uh, blabbing about something. This, this was, you know, just absolute rock solid proof. And what inspired me was there were so many different types of these traders, meaning they weren't related. They weren't connected. You know, one guy could be in Australia or people could be in Chicago or London. And they had all come at this style of trading, this non-fundamental style of trading uh, in different ways. And it was inspiring. I mean, look, for example, the owner of the Boston Red Sox made his billions of dollars to buy the Boston Red Sox through trend-following trading. The wealthiest trader in London today, I, well, maybe he's not the wealthiest, but one of the wealthiest, made his money through trend-following trading. It's just this fantastic story. I've had the good fortune to kind of be at the nexus, the center of, many times, the center of the story and to help uh, educate people to this great style of trading. And that's been my career. It's been quite fun. I think it's fantastic because uh, essentially you're taking, um, so when I, when I think people go down various paths when they want to learn how to be an investor and uh, oftentimes they're either you need to go the traditional route, which is get a pedigree to education, try to get yourself on Wall Street somehow and learn from someone, apprentice under someone and try to go that route. And if you aren't smart enough or you don't do well enough in school, oftentimes you are just uh, discarded by the wayside. You don't have any chance. 
So I love your, your side of the story because there's a lot of, like you said, all these traders, hidden traders that no one's ever really heard about that are outsiders, complete outsiders. And it's, it's amazing. It's like a true underdog's success story. Now, Michael, the, the other, the problem, not the problem, but a byproduct of that is also, there's a lot of scammy, uh, salespeople that are selling these sort of trend, follow this trend or trading style. And, and you could, you could just do it at home from your internet, you know, this sort of thing. And that's, that's proliferated recently since the internet and, and the flow of information has gotten much easier. But, um, you know, I mean, there's a dark side to every type of business. So, uh, but having said that, so when I, your book was one of the, one of the, probably the first 20 or so books that I, you know, I started my career in 2001 and your book was released uh, a few years after that. So it was definitely one of the first few investment books that I ever got. And for me personally, I started off as a trader uh, on Wall Street. So it appealed to me much more than something like financial statement analysis. You should add though, you should add there though, but financial statement analysis does not tell you when to buy or when to sell. That's just financial statement analysis, which starts to get at why trend following is so interesting. Right. So uh, one of the sort of references from your book is, uh, is sort of this notion that was portrayed in that movie Trading Places, right? Where these guys uh, just picked up a random person off the street uh, and taught him how to trade essentially within you know, a short amount of time. So uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit of the origins of, um, of where you started your research and searching for this trend following. Uh, maybe you could touch upon turtle traders as well? Well, sure. You know, I still remember in the summer of 1994, I had just interviewed for a job at Solomon Brothers, New York City, World Trade Center 7. And literally within weeks, I picked up a magazine. So, you know, there, there was the, the trading environment that you just described, what most people think of as typical Wall Street trading. And that's what I thought. And then I picked up a magazine within a few weeks that said, Wall Street's top 100 paid for the year. And like number 35 or number 37 was this guy named Jerry Parker, short little paragraph. And it said that he had made, I think, 30, $35 million for one year, you know, back in the early 1990s, that's huge money. And that was fascinating because it was not fundamentals. And it said he had learned, he had learned a trend tracking system from someone else. And I was like, okay, I don't have the pedigree. I don't have the right degree. But what is this all about? And if this guy that I don't know, Jerry Parker, and this was in a blink, this was like Malcolm Gladwell blink. In a second, I knew <laughs> if this guy, Jerry Parker, had learned whatever he had learned, because I didn't know at the time, I didn't know about the whole turtle story, then I could, then anyone could, which also told me that all of the people at the top of the food chain on Wall Street were there for the very reasons that you described connections, the right degrees, et cetera. But you didn't have to have that stuff. And that's what Jerry Parker's story proved. The story was the great turtle story, which everybody first read about in Jack Schwager's Market Wizards. Mm -hmm. My second book, The Complete Turtle Trader. Look, Richard Dennis in the early 1980s, he, him and George Soros are like the biggest, baddest traders on the planet. And Dennis sees this movie Trading Places with his partner, Bill Eckhart. And they kind of have this conversation. Could we do this? Could we? I mean, look, <laughs> Richard Dennis had made a couple hundred million dollars by the age of 37 in 1982. Huge money. <laughs> and so could they take people off the street and show them his rules? Well, his partner said, no way, this is not going to happen. Well, they did. 
It took like 20, approximately 20 people off the street, essentially really off the street. Some of them had zero experience. Gave them two weeks of rules, trend following trading rules, price action rules, let them go trade down the street from their main offices. Four years later, about four years later, they had made about 100 million profits as a group. Then they all went on their own, became hedge fund managers throughout the 90s and still some till this day and have made still even more money. And again, as I mentioned the thing with John Henry earlier and hinted at David Harding at Winston Capital, so many other traders, it wasn't just the turtles, other traders, John Henry, David Harding, Bill Dunn, Ken Tropin, Mm -hmm. all these different types of traders were going down the same path. And so this is a fantastic story. And I think with the turtle story, they were nicknamed the turtles. What the turtle story showed more than anything is that you could take someone off the street, give them rules and say, go do it. Now, look, there's plenty of rules that we can all get in our life, but it's up to us to execute. But what that that story proves, though, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is you can do it. That doesn't mean everybody will do it. Right. Right, exactly. So, uh, and I think that's, so here's where uh, the human psychology part of uh, investing comes into play. And, uh, you know, you, uh, we'll talk about your podcast in a little bit, because it's one of the, the, the best sort of uh, podcasts out there. And, and you've, I like how you've, uh, you've, you've kind of done more than just interviewed uh, investing people, you've, you've branched out. And some of the people that you've interviewed are, Nobel Prize winning, uh, you know, psychologists who have written books about human behavior. Um, and I believe that uh, with investing, and I don't know what, what your view is, but a large percentage of it is, comes down to emotion and how you can manage your emotion and, and control that. A large percent or all of it? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps all of it. Um, so I think that uh, any type of rules-based system, uh, in my opinion, uh, has its advantages. So if you go like fundamental investing versus sort of momentum are, are kind of like, it's like religion or politics or something or two ends of the spectrum. And a lot of people just veer towards one or the other. And I feel like while some, some people have made a lot of money, like Warren Buffett on the fundamental side, when you're going through a drawdown and you're sitting there and you've done your analysis and you've built your conviction level, it's basically comes down to you and believing yourself and the work that you've done and your level of conviction. And you have to decide whether you can bear that drawdown. Uh, Whereas I feel like if you're following a rules-based system, I think I would have a little bit more confidence just overall uh, based on rules. And, you know, you can extrapolate that to sort of the quant when they use factor-based investing that's back-tested on 80, 100 years of data. So interestingly enough, I think that uh, as I'm getting older, uh, my sort of emotions uh, are a little bit more, I, I don't want to deal with it in the market anymore. So I'm curious to see, how, have you consistently just kept to trend following personally uh, throughout the years or has your style changed as well? No, I mean, look, like every knucklehead in the 1990s, of course, <laughs> I did my fair share of .com. <laughs> oh, yes, I, I know the fundamentals of pet.com, pets.com. You know, of course, everyone does... Uh, uh, something silly. But I think your larger point that you're making, and you you hinted at Daniel Kahneman, you think about his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, that really is the trick. It, if there ever was a trick, it's it's knowing yourself. And I don't really think for me, I don't have any, I don't have any desire to compete with the person that comes on TV and says, 
I know the fundamentals of this and this will happen. Mm. Because anybody that takes a statistical view realizes, I mean, this is all about coin flipping. And so whoever's got this great, you know, confidence and, you know, bragging about he knows what's going to happen. I mean, it's all a coin flip. It's a ridiculous coin flip. You speak to drawdowns. I mean, look, Warren Buffett is famous for saying, if you can't tolerate a 50% drawdown, you should not be in the market. Again, the most famous, most successful value investor there is, if you can't tolerate a 50% drawdown, you should not be in the market. I will guarantee you the vast majority of Warren Buffett acolytes <laughs> and fundamental traders and value investors today will actually disagree <laughs> with Warren Buffett. Very true. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's cool. I, I, I love how you're, you know, you, before I read your book, I didn't, I think, and a lot of people, this probably is the same for a lot of people, is they probably haven't heard of a lot of these pockets of traders that were out there. And, uh, you know, you hear about, Certain groups like uh, the Tiger Cubs, you know Julian Robertson, and and uh, you know Goldman Sachs uh, prop desk, or or uh, you know that these little groups. But then when I read your book, it kind of opened my eyes to this whole new group of traders that I had never heard of, and it was fascinating and uh, inspiring, actually. Um, and not for nothing, you know, I mean, let's take our current market for example. I mean, we're by any. Uh, let's say U.S. equities and, and fixed income markets by any sort of measure metric is extremely overvalued. So the value investors have been sitting on their hands for the last 18 months to two years, perhaps, uh, doing nothing, whereas the momentum guys, trend followers, have made <laughs> money hand over fist, probably, uh, in this market. So, um, you know, using that as sort of a, uh, as a transition, what, what are your thoughts currently on, on this market and what's going to bring this bull market to an end? You just asked a trend-following trader that question. What's going <laughs> to end this bull market? Well, the honest answer is, is anybody that tells you they know the answer to that is absolutely 100% full of you know what. I mean, that's the God's honest truth. No one knows. Now, look, we can all look at history and we can try and approximate when things might feel bubblicious, but that doesn't do us any good if we've got to buy and sell, if we've got to make bets. If we've got to have diversification, it doesn't do any good to try and predict the end of any market run. And your question hinted at one particular type of market, an index. Look, there are individual equities, there are futures contracts, there are commodities markets, there's gold, there's silver, there's Uber, there's palladium, there's the agricultural markets. I mean, there's so many different markets. And I think one of the things that if people can take away from what I'm talking about today, who cares where your money comes from? <laughs> who cares where your profit comes from? But you know what? People do care. People want to make their money in what they think is their cool market, their market they love. It's, again, this gets back to the Daniel Kahneman, the emotional part. It shouldn't be emotional. I'm not saying it doesn't become emotional, but in a perfect world, if you're trying to emulate the most successful, and these are just streams of numbers. Mm. You could go up to a desert island and you could just look at an old-fashioned ticker tape, not know the symbol, and trade an end-of-price, end-of-day price quote. You don't have to know the name of the market. And again, why is the name of the market even important? I mean, if you make, you know, if you make a hundred percent in oil, or you make a hundred percent in Tesla, and the dollar gain is the same. Why did you care whether or not you made it in oil or Tesla? Who cares? 
And that's a really tough, tough concept for people to wrap their arms around. I, I've had trend-following traders tell me, no, Mike, you don't get it. A, a lot of well-known folks, you don't get it, Mike. People get this concept today. This is common knowledge. I don't think it's common knowledge. I, I don't think people get this at all. They won't get it until the current equity index bull market goes the other direction. Then they'll get it. They'll get it after trend following has its next big run up. That's just, uh, that's life. That's how it works. Well, I also think that there's a strange uh, antiquated sort of uh, bragging rights that comes along with uh, being a good stock picker, I think. And um, even though all the smart guys would actually go down to the fixed income desk. <laughs> but being a good stock picker, I think has, for some reason, it just carries like this, uh, I don't know, this, this, uh, this badge of honor for, for some of these old school guys. So they think that, oh, well, if I'm smart enough to uh, make money trading stocks, then, you know, I'm a king of the world or the king of the markets. But, um, you know, I mean, money is money, I suppose. Um, but I, I, I like the fact that when you were talking about your analogy, you could be on a desert island just trading the ticker tape because that's very relevant for uh, markets like Asia. So, um, you know, shifting gears now, uh, um, you know, you've spent a lot of time in Asia and you've spoken at a lot of different conferences and, and you know, you've consulted with some sovereign wealth funds, some of the largest in the world. Um, and a lot of people, when they come to Asia, you know, they, they, they don't, they're not successful. And that's due to a number of reasons. Number one, there's the home country bias. So they don't look outside of the U.S. equity markets or fixed income markets. But number two, a lot of them say, oh, well, Asia doesn't trade on fundamentals. You know, you can't, you can't really apply the same rules. But now your argument is that if you use trend following rules, it doesn't matter which market you are, you can still make money, right? I think the issue probably that you're hinting at in, because we don't want to generalize Asia, but I think what you're really hinting at, if we did generalize Asia and we try to group you know, a dozen or so plus countries into one, I think liquidity is the issue, really. Can you get your money out when you want it? Mm. Now, in terms of trading style, anyone can look at, again, I don't like the generalization here, but anyone can look at, quote, Asian markets <laughs> and you can see some volatility sometimes. You know, Sometimes you'll see straight up trends, but overall, I think you, you, you'll see a little more volatility. I mean, look at, look at the, the Shanghai, for example. Uh, and that just makes a lot of sense to come at from a trend following perspective. I think the one thing that I have noticed after spending a lot of time in Asia in the last five years, it feels like whether I'm talking with people in Singapore or Beijing or Bangkok or KL, Tokyo, it feels like people are more accepting to this idea of let me analyze the price action instead of the fundamentals. Meaning, Mike, let's talk about what's a good entry criteria? Mike, let's talk about good exit criteria. Let's talk about a proper diversification of a trend-following portfolio. Let's talk about bet size. Let's talk about leverage. That seems to be something that perhaps for the very reason you're hinting at, Asia accepts more. Because perhaps, and I can't speak to it, I'm not Asian yet. Maybe if I'm here for 10 more years, <laughs> I will be um, But I think it hints at that people in this part of the world are less trusting of the fundamentals. And so when they find out about a way, a technique, a process that can give them an edge, a mathematical edge, that really hits home in this part of the world. I believe so. And, and uh, you know, Asians... 
Uh, well, we can go down general this generalization route because I am Asian, so I can I can get away with it. Probably Asians love to play the stock market, particularly here in Hong Kong, and uh, they love to gamble as well. So it's just another form of gambling, and uh, it's funny because most of the wealth in Hong Kong was, as you probably know, it was generated through the property market, um, and but yet they still love trading stocks. Um, but the second that you uh, bring up like early stage investing or any sort of different asset class, they're like, oh, no, 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 we don't, we want to stick to what we know. We'll rather just go gamble in the, in the markets than, uh, than any of that. So you, uh, what, how long have you been uh, kind of based in Asia or splitting your time in Asia? You know, to, to, before I jump to that question, <laughs> I should add something about Hong Kong. Having presented from Northern Asia down to Southeast Asia, everything in between, dozens and dozens of times, I will have to say some of my most vocal debaters have been at Hong Kong presentations. Hmm. Generally, though, generally the skeptics at the Hong Kong presentations are white guys. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but generally it's the white guys that want to argue the fundamentals. This doesn't work. Uh, but it, it's really notorious in Hong Kong from, from my perspective. So I came to my the first time I was in Asia actually was 2006 Hong Kong. And then within a few months, Tokyo. But then I was away for years, maybe 2008. And then I came, uh, CLSA mm. uh, invited me to present uh, in 2013. It was like a four-month uh, presentation all across Asia. And that was, you know, I was living in uh, Southern California. And after that four months, I was like, well, I think I'm going to stay in this part of the world. You know, I think, look, and this is kind of a side tangent, but if somebody wants excitement in their life, if somebody feels the need for a shot of adrenaline, I'm not saying you can't find it in London. I'm not saying it doesn't exist in New York City to some degree, or you might sneak up on it in LA. Give me a break, though, if you look at the modern Asian cities, which, you know, it's like pants on fire adrenaline rush. And, you know, maybe it burns people out eventually, or maybe it keeps them going, but there really is something for those for those people that uh, have not yet experienced the major Asian cities, it's a fantastic experience. Well, I came over here in uh, 2005, and uh, I've been here ever since. And uh, I still, yeah, I still love it. You know, I have a family now. I'm settled down. I have three kids. So it's not quite the same uh, uh, experience, but I still love it here. And there's, like you said, there's just a, there's an energy in their vibe that you can't really get elsewhere. So uh, what were some of the, what excites you about Asia right now from an investment standpoint? You know, I mean, everyone talks about China, everyone talks about growth and, and, uh, and the rising middle class and this sort of thing. You are down in Saigon, uh, which is another Vietnam that has a lot of interesting and exciting things happening. What, where are you, what, what are you seeing as far as opportunities in the region? You know, again, you're, I know it's hard because that's the kind of typical question you would ask. <laughs> but you know, from, a, from a trend following perspective, I really don't care about the fundamental story. Sure, I can look out the window and I can feel the energy of Saigon. Or if I go to Hong Kong, I can feel the energy. But from a trading perspective, and this is, I'm going to beat this drum, if you want something different, the trend following approach says, okay, what is our tracking portfolio? What are we going to follow? And from that following, we are then going to say, what's our entry criteria, right? And you're going to take an entry and 60% of the time, you're going to lose a small amount of money. 
So I don't have the ability, I'm not going to even pretend, I don't have the ability to forecast a damn thing. Not at all, really. But I think there's also something beautiful to that. Because I think for the people that are listening today, it's nice to say to yourself, oh, wow, if I go down this path that Mike is talking about, where he can't give me the fundamental story about XYZ, new equity issue in Saigon or KL or Singapore, but he says, let's look for some momentum across the board in our tracking portfolio of the assorted instruments in play. And then he's willing to take an entry on a company that he knows nothing about. And if he loses X, Y, Z percent of his money, 5%, whatever, I'm just generalizing, he'll get out and he'd be willing to get back into that particular market if it turns around and goes the other way again. This is an entirely different way of thinking, mm. really. You know, And so it allows you, if you, and this is why I mentioned liquidity, if one feels like they have liquidity down, if they feel comfortable with the regulatory structure, if they feel comfortable with the government structure, that they can get their money in and out, then I'm giving my readers, my listeners, my students, I'm giving them the opportunity to use a tool that allows them to become an expert in all of these markets immediately. That's just super cool. I, super awesome, really. I mean, you know, it's great. And it's not necessarily something unique to me, as I mentioned in the beginning of this conversation. It's a, it's a long-standing style of trading that goes back literally decades. Well, I think it's, it's, uh, you're applying the principles almost to your life because you've, you've moved over there. You've obviously seen some sort of action in Asia and you decided to move action? here. Action? What kind of action are you talking about? Well, I mean, you, can, <laughs> you, you, you can interpret that any way you want. But, uh, uh, so so why, why Saigon, though? I mean, you could have picked any city in Asia. Why there? No, you know what? I'm, I'm, I don't. I like Saigon. I like Singapore. I like Tokyo. I like Hong Kong. I like KL. I thought about living in KL at one point in time. I actually thought about living in Bali, but after two weeks of living in Bali, I was like, please get me <laughs> off the island. You know, I, don't, I mean, it, it, I guess for a couple of week vacation, that's fine, but I'm a, I'm a city guy. Yeah. Um, you know, Saigon has got an interesting vibe. I think, you know, look, if you come to Hong Kong, or you go to Tokyo, you go to Singapore, you feel maturity, you feel stable, you feel yeah, sure, you'll see new buildings and stuff like that. Saigon feels like the Wild West. You know, If you turn around in Saigon, there's a new 80-story condo complex. If you don't walk down a certain street on week one, in week two, the restaurant you like may be gone. The building may be gone. It might be a new building with a new restaurant that's even better. I mean, it's really that kind of energy. And I think that brings up an interesting issue from a fundamental perspective about, about Asia, which I think is useful for trend followers to think about. There are two, what, sh- 100 in, what is it, 180 million people or 160 million people or, or 250 million people in Indonesia, another mm-hmm. 100 million in Saigon, what, 60 or 70 million in Thailand, 60 or 70 million in uh, Malaysia, what, 120 million in uh, Japan, 1.4 billion in China, uh, <laughs> what, 60 or 70 million in, in Korea, I mean, the demographics are absolutely insane. Mm. And so I think, you know, that's, it's from a trend following perspective, you do want to know that there is some, there's some gusto behind the markets. There's, there are people standing in line wanting to trade, wanting to make bets. And that is, that's something really interesting about the cultures in this part of the world. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's exciting. And, uh, you know, I, I, 
I, the first thing that I tell people whenever they ask about investing in Asia is I say, you just have to get over here and see it for yourself first, you know, before you do anything else. I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's my, my view. I have a strong view that you got to come and, and take a look for yourself first and then figure out what interests you and, and how you can get involved in the action, so to speak. You know, that's a great point because so many, so many non-Asian investors or travelers they view their first experience in Asia, and I guess I did this at first too, but they view it like, okay, let's get the schedule done. I'll be there for five days. I'm flying over, then I'm flying back. <laughs> uh, no, they, no, one, no one here in this part of the world trusts that. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you need to come break bread, and somebody needs to know that you're, you're spending time here and that you actually uh, get it. Now, of course, investments can be made without having all that, but I can safely say that in this part of the world, I think people really appreciate if you take the time to get it. Yep. If you get their culture, you get their food, you can appreciate their food. Um, and if you're a white guy, for example, uh, if you can use chopsticks, <laughs> and I can, I can. And but I would have to say every dinner that I've been from North Asia to Southeast Asia usually involves me and a group of, uh, of Asian businessmen who want to see if I can use chopsticks <laughs> because they're dying to make fun of me if I can't. And so it's always nice to, uh, it's always nice to put that to bed quickly. Well, it's the first test, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, the first test. Well, that's awesome. Um, so Mike, what are, you, what are you working on these days? So you have an amazing podcast. All listeners, I, I highly, highly recommend uh, Mike's podcast. It's one of the best out there. And like one of those, I think you're, you're one of actually the pioneers when it comes to anything investing podcast related because I don't I didn't I didn't really see any others out there early on uh, early doors independent I mean not associated with like a financial news network or anything like that so how many episodes you're up to like five six hundred or something like that approaching 600 wow yeah um, and in the meantime you also directed a movie uh, which I mean did you a few years back on that one the time flies but yeah I spent three years of my life during the middle of the Great Recession, putting a documentary film together. It was not planned to be about the Great Recession. The, the film was in motion before that, before that chain of events happened. The film was in motion in late 06, uh, but we had to adjust on the fly once things started to wow. melt down. So Interesting. Uh, well, I, I feel like, I guess if it was the same sort of thematic, then that, re that recession actually just strengthened the, the argument you were trying to make, right? I mean... Oh, sure. I mean, look, there's... I could think of, I mean, Ben Stein, the author, the guy that was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, all that stuff, <laughs> he's famous for saying, if you made money, if you made money in October of 08, you were doing something wrong. <laughs> I, I, you know, if people want to send me an email, my email address is really simple. My name at my last name .com, I will give you a laundry list of people and funds that made fortunes in October of 08. And I think that's still a fascinating thing for people because probably I would hazard a guess the vast majority of investors do not know of a trader or a fund that made money in October of 08 honorably mm. and outside the system. I'm not talking about you know Goldman Sachs and gifts from the government and all that kind of nonsense. I'm not talking about being Warren Buffett, the richest guy on the block. I'm right. talking about trading strategies that had no ability to predict October of 08 at all mm. and still made fortunes. So it is one of those things where, 
you know, I think as a trend following trader, I have to be careful that I don't want to tell someone, oh, things are at a bubble stage and, you know, uh, it could go down from here. But here's the reality. Trend following is the strategy that does fantastically well when markets drop, mm. especially equity markets, especially equity index markets. When equity index markets drop, think about what happens. So this is kind of the fundamental reason that trend following traders make money. So if you're a trend following trader and you're coming into 2008, you do not know that October 08 will happen, but you have a diversified portfolio of markets. It could from energies to metals to you name it, including equity indices. Things start to change. And what happens when you get to that fall 08 time period, money is running from index markets, running to other markets. So trend following traders are already in positions mm -hmm. that are already trending, even maybe just a little bit earlier in 08. And then when the panic happens, it reinforces right. the move. And so it's just a fabulous, I tell people it's, it's Daniel Kahneman's book in trading form, really. Yeah. It's, it's all Kahneman's work that he got for behavioral finance, behavioral economics, prospect theory, getting the Nobel for that work, trend following, is that in action as a trading strategy? That's, yeah, that's pretty much it. That's spot on. Um, so yeah, you, the, the podcast, uh, you, you're doing an awesome job with that. Um, you know, you obviously have your website and for, again, audience listening in, you, you have, uh, you actually have some, some courses that, that you teach this trend strategy, a trend following strategy yeah, to, people right? people want more information. They're easy to find. They can always go check, uh, check, me out at trend following. Uh, I do. I've been teaching people for what seems like decades now, giving them insights on these types of strategies. Uh, you know, I'd enjoy the the books too. The books are quite fun. To newest edition of trend following out this year. Nice. I think it's two hundred and twenty thousand words. The audio book is thirty four hours. Wow. <laughs> yes. So it will keep you busy. Um, Any other yeah. exciting projects that you're working on, Mike? Well, there's always something exciting, but I generally like to mention it until yeah. it's out you know sure you sounds like you got something good on your uh, something big up your sleeves that's coming down the pipeline um and the, and the podcast is that weekly two episodes a week until wow. i burn out two episodes a week until i burn out but i'm what did i start that's fifth or sixth year into this so still going strong it's fun so yeah awesome well listen i it's been it's been a pleasure talking to you man you're you're uh you're unlike any other guests that we've had. So I think the audience is really going to enjoy and appreciate what you have to say. But uh, we appreciate your time, Mike. And uh, so, yeah, uh, back to the best place people can find you, follow you, connect with you is, uh, I guess, your website, trendfollowing.com. Trendfollowing.com. Uh, I'm at Twitter, my last name, at Covell. Uh, easy to find. If you want to drop me a personal email, it's michael at covell1l.com. And, uh, or if, I guess if, if I ever swing down to Saigon or if you're ever up here in Hong Kong. You know, I was in Hong Kong, I think like 18 months ago, two years ago. I got to get back up. I think so. you do. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Appreciate your time. Take care. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All of the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next exciting episode of The Jay Kim Show. As always, I'd love to hear your questions, comments, or future guest suggestions. 
You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer. That's J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you in the next episode.